Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I... Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Weagle 91.1. This morning, we are joined with Dr. Eden McLean from the Auburn University History Department. Dr. McLean earned her PhD in history from Yale University and taught at Western Connecticut State University for two years before joining the Auburn faculty in 2012. Dr. McLean's research focuses on fascist Italy. Dr. McLean also offers courses on world history, modern Europe, fascism, and modern Italy. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. For having me. (laughs) Yeah. So what got you interested in history? Uh, the, the short answer is that my father was a historian, oh, so yeah. um, history was all, everything had a history, so yeah. um, even asking him if he wanted seconds for dinner was <laughs> like, well, in the 16th and 17th century. Um, so we spent a lot of time exploring cities and museums oh, and yeah. um, the history behind it. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So your research is primarily on fascism, fascist Italy. What drew you to that genre of uh, history, that specific time in Italy, too? Uh, So I love all history is the Mm -hmm. short answer. And so (laughs) I, uh, my father was a historian of Germany, and I spent time as a kid living in Germany. Um, And I, as I was sort of going through high school and taking foreign languages. I took all of the German I could and Latin. Um, And then um, my dad and I fought over foreign languages uh, (laughs) and and settled on Italian. Um, And so I studied abroad in Italy when I was in college. And uh, frankly, what I was really struck by was how little Americans know about modern Italy. We talk a lot about the Renaissance, we talk a lot about ancient Rome, but we don't talk about uh, modern Italy, and particularly we don't talk about fascist Italy all that much. Uh, We talk about how Mussolini got the trains to run on time, and then we talk about him as the um, sort of underling of Adolf Hitler. Uh, And the more time I spent in Italy... I was really, I really wanted to push back on on that narrative um, because I think that modern Italy writ large, that is, since it was united in, unified in the mid-19th century, Mm. um, modern Italy really exemplifies a lot of the challenges of 19th and 20th century European history. And fascist Italy was absolutely a model for a lot of Hitler's programs Mm. and um, and in some ways has been a more insidious uh, regime than a lot of other totalitarian regimes. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. How do you define fascism? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, okay. So in terms of when I talk about fascist Italy, I'm talking about the regime that was in power 
in Italy between 1922 and 1943, mm -hmm. run with the, um, under the leadership of Benito Mussolini and the fascist party. Now, what fascism is, um, as my undergraduates and graduate students who take my course on fascism will tell you, uh, is that fascism is really hard to define. <laughs> it is something that people like to throw around mm -hmm. as a catch-all for something I don't like. Right. Uh, but it is more complicated than that. And I think uh, it's important that we talk about sort of differences between a fa the fascist movement mm -hmm. and the fascist regime. Because the fascist movement, which is what Mussolini sort of organized in 1919, right after World War I, was very much uh, anti-politics. Oh. It was a a movement that called for action over words and especially uh, trying to what its followers believed sort of right what was wrong in Italy at the time, especially again in the aftermath of World War One, mm. which was incredibly devastating right. to Italy. Um, and yet Italy was considered a victor in World War One but it felt that it got, um, it didn't get its due right. in the Treaty of Versailles after, after the war. Um, and so Mussolini and his followers really believed that it needed to strengthen Italy and rid it of all of the weaknesses, mm. uh, such as socialism and communism um, and liberal regimes that were weak, right, and didn't do what Italians needed it to do. Right. Now, but I think what's essential to a definition of fascism um, is the fact that this movement then becomes a regime by claiming that it is a popular movement, hmm. that it is the will of the people. Hmm. And even though they never win the majority of any elections. Oh, yeah. They come to power. Hmm. Um, and through supposedly uh, legitimate means, so Mussolini was actually appointed by the king of Italy as the prime minister. And then over time, he takes more and more power for the fascist party. Um, and that power is meant as always, to, again, um, strengthen Italy in the image of this sort of imagined image of historical grandeur. So okay. um, the great Roman past, the uh, and essentially all of these weaknesses have um, sort of masked all of the greatness hmm. that is Italy. So he's yeah. going to get it all back, right? Right, right. But and he has the will of the people, but he um, just needs them to trust that he knows what they want and mm. that what he wants is what they want. Right. So fascism, this is a rambling answer, but fascism really is this movement and a regime that attempts to have total control over um, a population mm -hmm through this image of having their best interests in mind and purifying the nation 
for in order to make it strong again. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And definitely, I think that's a good definition <laughs> and a good like preface of what, what it is that you look at specifically and what the point of uh, it was from the leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Your research also centers around the uh, education and the question of identity. What makes these topics so interesting to study for you? Well, I'll, I'll start with it's sort of identity. Um, and largely it's because you know, trained as a historian, I am trained to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, and particularly, as I think we all do, uh, we feel, I felt growing up and through college, that people always made assumptions about me based on where I was from or my education or what I looked like. And I constantly felt this push and pull of sort of both um, rising to their expectations and then pushing against them. Oh, yeah. And I find concepts of identity or identification really fascinating because our brains are really sort of wired to try and simplify things to make sense of the world, mm-hmm. right? To make categories of people, of things, so that we can sort of understand the world around us. But of course that flattens everything. Right. Um, and we those categories that we create are generally speaking, really problematic. They Mm -hmm. um, make assumptions about people. They make assumptions about places. They uh, make assumptions about what should happen. So um, I was first really interested in uh, concepts of race and nation um, because um, I just started asking questions like, well, what actually is a nation? Hmm. What does race actually mean? Um, where are the edges of those definitions? And since I sort of have begun my career, I've started pushing even more, sort of asking, well, what are the definitions of these and why? And what does that actually mean? So borderlands and um, sort of... uh, what is liberalism? What is fascism? What right. is what are these uh, different categories? And and one, why we create these categories, and two, what are the consequences? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Versus the reality. Absolutely, absolutely. But education. Uh, I grew up in a family of educators, um, and uh, I realized how powerful education is in history uh, because they it really mirrors what states what regimes and and occasionally what parents want to instill in their children right how what the image of the future mm-hmm. is for the grown-ups in the room um, so you can really get a sense for the priorities of a government or yeah. community through the the ways they teach and what the content yeah. of that education is. Yeah, that's definitely like a timeless, timeless uh, definition, timeless way to look at look at the world is through that education and what people prioritize. Yeah, and I think especially in the the early twentieth century is really interesting, sort of the turn of the twentieth century because people are starting to realize 
that children aren't just small adults, right? I mean, we've all seen the medieval paintings of uh, Jesus just looking like a, a, a as a baby, just looking like a really old man, right? But small, yeah. Um, and and that was part of the thinking, right? The kids, children were just small adults, hmm. or that they were um, already formed. And starting in you know the Enlightenment, we people started thinking about how children and and humans can be molded mm. into different kinds of uh, of people um, right, in yeah. yeah someone's image and so by the turn of the ni- 20th century um, sort of psychology and pedagogy and politicians are realizing that children are really malleable and so that they can be both sort of physically emotionally and intellectually and and they can be formed into whatever the people in charge want right. them. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Impressionable mm-hmm. youth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. And crazy that that wasn't always the thinking, too. That's a good point. And, yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah. So as part of your research, you must travel to Italy a lot. So how do uh, Italian archives differ from American ones? Um, so... <laughs> Uh, Italian archives are um, a study in chaos, by and large, but it depends <laughs> where you go. Uh, so the fact of the matter is, as it does in the United States, but the fact of the matter is they just don't have a lot of funds mm. to organize um, the, the the state archives. Right. And in particular, sort of modern Italian history is not the top priority. Mm. So if you go into libraries and archives looking for things, sources on the Renaissance, for mm. example, it seems pretty standard. You have to right. wear special gloves. You have to be in special rooms and be very careful. Mm-hmm. But for 19th and 20th century and mm. now 21st century uh, sources in the National Archives you can have your coffee by wow. the sources. Yeah. You can, you know, smoking technically isn't allowed, but over the years I've seen people sort of have their feet inside the room with their head outside <laughs> the window wow. smoking. Um, you know, people can use... It, it's just much more right. uh, relaxed and... Um, and they're not very well taken care of. Mm. They also um, have very limited access, right? Uh. So they're not very organized. So a lot of the finding aids are not digitized. Mm. Very few of the sources are digitized. But um, So you have to go through these massive volumes mm. of indices that and cross-reference, mm. right, where things are. But oftentimes you'll find a... Uh, sort of you'll look through the collection that you want to look at and you'll see one box and all it will say that it contains is various. Oh. And that could mean that it's an empty folder or it has an amazing trove of of sources. Yeah. Um, But that's just the National Archives. Right. And and so in, in part, sort of regional archives and town archives are very much more organized Mm. because 
they are the purview of of individuals, oh, right? And they yeah. understand and they know. So there have been a number of archives that I've gone to that they will open it up just for me, mm-hmm. right? Or on the other side of things, the sort of the museum of school in Rome um, was actually under construction, which apparently meant that the archive was not really accessible. Mm. But the archivists just brought sources from their own homes for me to look at. Oh, wow. But then other times, you know, archives are only open on Tuesdays and Thursdays Mm. from 9 to 11 a.m. And I get there and it's 10 and they decide they want to go home. (laughs) So that's it for the day, right? Or there's the Vatican, which I need a diplomatic letter Ah. uh, to get gain entry. Yeah. And I have to show my credentials. And then I cannot take any pictures. Mm. I can, um, and I have, in certain boxes, I have to tell them exactly what I want to look at. And they will take out particular documents. I don't know what else is in that box that they don't want me to see. Oh, yeah. But so there are, there's a wide. Wow, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Wide range of experiences in Italy. Yeah. Um, And it's not as uniform (laughs) as I think. Yeah, yeah, that lack of uniformity definitely would make an impact on the experience for sure. And then, you know, I guess thinking about it as they have such that large history and the popular focus tends to be on the less modern section. So I guess that's where their limited funds go towards. They do. And so, I mean, every government gets rid of documents every year. Mm. But so one of the major organizations in fascist Italy was the fascist youth organization, Mm. um, which is essentially sort of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, Mm. um, but more violent. (laughs) And uh, no one knows where the archives are for them. They just don't know. They've just disappeared. So I find pieces in other collections, documents to other organizations Mm. or whatever, from that, from the Balila organization. But I... No one knows where the actual collection is. Wow. Or one of the other major organizations, the the Organization for the Protection of Mothers and Children, mm. which, by the way, is in existence until 1975. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s, they just destroyed most of the archive. Wow. Wow. They have the receipts for mm. the documents that were destroyed, but they wow. didn't find it... W- it was important enough to huh. keep all of those documents. Oh, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Huh. Well, for our last question before our first ad break, mm-hmm. how does your work tie into our theme for this semester of bridging the past and the present? I mean, I think questions of sort of identity identification and sort of uh, how we how we feel connected to other people is always an important right. uh, issue in society. Um, education is also always an important issue, but I think in particular in today's moment, this is issues of fascism and um, sort of identification or sort of race, racism, um, gender, and the role of education in American society and society at large is really, really important, Mm. especially as we see a lot of politicians um, and educators clamoring for 
more or less regulation on what they can teach, particularly the more regulation of what they can teach, how they can teach it, and the anxiety about um, how big the rules are Mm. and how they could be punished for teaching the wrong things. Um, And in particular, the call for a lot of bans or limitations on what students have access to Um, those calls are considered sort of calls from parents, right? They're parents' rights, Hmm. this collective, popular movement. But the fact is that I don't know how popular it is. So talking about and pushing this idea of uh, sort of the the democracy of education is really, really important to the democracy of our country and and sort of the expansion of uh, students' sort of ability to make choices for themselves. Right. But also that it um, it creates more innovation mm, in yeah. our society, right. which is good for everyone. So anyway, yeah, yeah. the point is, is that, yes, all of these questions are incredibly prescient. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, and with that, we're going to go into our first ad break. Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, Sophie and I are joined by Dr. McLean, and now we're going to talk about her first book, which is entitled Mussolini's Children, Race and Elementary Education in Fascist Italy, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2018. So this book explores how the Italian education system tried to use education to, quote, rejuvenate the Italian race and create a second Roman Empire. So what inspired you to start working on this project? It started because because I was trying to grapple with the role of fascist Italy in the Holocaust. Hmm. Because no one thinks of fascist Italy being involved in the Holocaust. And in fact, most Italian, or I shouldn't say, a lot of Italians will push back and say, well, no Jews were ever um, sort of deported to concentration camps Hmm. under fascist rule. Wow. Which is absolutely true. Okay. Of course, after fascism fell in 1943, lots of Jews were deported to oh. concentration camps. Hmm. Um, and I was struck by the idea of fascist Italy having no role <laughs> in. The Holocaust, especially given the fact that it had um, anti-Semitic laws on the books, Mm. that it had um, very racialized laws in its empire Mm. and in sort of on the peninsula and islands, Um, and that when Jews were deported in 1943-44... 45, um, that it was fairly easy to do. Oh, wow. So we don't see, and there was resistance, but we don't see massive resistance. Hmm. And But we do have evidence <laughs> that um, when Mussolini, and for that matter Hitler, proposed policies and undertook campaigns that were unpopular, they pulled back. Oh. So, right, we think of 
Hitler especially, but generally authoritarian right. uh, rulers as having just free reign to do whatever they want. And that's not true, hmm. especially when you think that their image is that they are a popular leader. Oh, yeah. That they have the will of the people. Right. right? So you have to have the will of the people oh, yeah. in order to, or at least to a certain extent, right? right. Force is always, always part of the story. Anyway, but what I found was because of these sort of, this sense of discomfort with mm -hmm. the general narrative that Italy was not racist, not anti-Semitic, yeah. um, I tried to sort of explore why that made me uncomfortable. Hmm. And, um, and that expanded into broader ideas of race uh, because anti-Semitism is a form of racism. Right. And, um, and then as I started, I tried to grapple with this, I realized that I wouldn't be able to make any definitive statements on, about the population because everyone is, each in, yeah. person is an individual, right? Right, right. And so, um, and there were rabid anti-Semites in the fascist regime, mm -hmm. but there were also Jews in mm. the fascist regime wow. for a certain extent of, of amount of time. And one of Mussolini's many lovers was Jewish. Oh, wow. Um, and so I thought that what would be, what would get to some of the general goals of the fascist regime was how they were how it was sort of wanting to train the children of Italy to right. think about the nation and their role in it and what was Italy. Yeah, yeah. So you had that big question mm -hmm. that was overarching for the whole population, and then your best way at getting at that angle was through education. Yeah. yeah. Which doesn't mean, of course, that they were totally successful. <laughs> right, right, yeah, but yeah. But that those were the goals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What sources did you use for this project? Right, so as I, as I mentioned, some of the major sources that I wanted to use are not available. Right. Um, and so I did use uh, quite a number of sources from the Ministry of Education mm. and also just the Ministry of Popular Culture, which is basically their... Um, their propaganda arm, uh, uh, and sources from their public uh, public health organizations, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of textbooks and educational journals. Yeah, and then I tr worked also to find uh, sources from individual students and individual teachers. Oh yeah, wow. Neat combination of those big, big picture and smaller or more zoomed in picture, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So could you give a list, our listeners a taste of your findings? Uh, how did the education system impact Italy? Yeah. So, the, uh, so I think it's important to sort of think about the goals of fascism as sort of unifying the nation and mm -hmm. strengthening it. Right. And so part of how fascism went about doing that is to instill the idea that people were all part of one unified nation. Right. right? Um, and then to define that nation. Mm -hmm. And 
by and large, over the years, over the 20 years that Mussolini is in power, uh, we see an increasingly um, defined sense of what it meant to be Italian. And by defined, I mean excluding more mm. and more people in that definition. Mm. Uh, so we see the sort of the evolution of educational policies mirroring Mussolini's grip on the government, right? So we have, in the beginning of the 1920s, we have uh, a ton of different textbooks and teachers having much more freedom. And then uh, by the late 1920s, we have everything unified in one administration, and by the early 1930s, we have um, one single textbook that's allowed, and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. But we also um, see increased emphasis on defining Italians through this concept of the Roman past and the supposed characteristics that come with it and the supposed obligations that come with that, which means that if you are sort of Italian, you are hardworking, oh, yeah. you are Catholic, you mm -hmm. are um, sort of faithful to your family, and by extension then, through your parents to the state, mm -hmm. that you are, um, that you stand up for your nation. Right. Uh, that means sort of that you are trained as soldiers and as mothers, mm. um, that you put your, the state above any individual. Mm. And that was considered inherited. Those were inherited characteristics. Interesting. That the educational system was going to strengthen. Hmm. And if you didn't have those characteristics, then obviously you weren't Italian. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's the log you know, the logical loop. Right, yeah, yeah. And how that all like ties back to having that I guess, popular support for the regime uh, so that it stays in power because that makes sense. Like, even though it's authoritarian, you want to prevent someone trying to take over by convincing them that you're there because you're supported. Right. Exactly. And then starting that into education, too. And I guess that, you know, the kids come home and tell their parents about what they learned and that it has the ripple effect out yes. from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm kinda, it kind of reminds me of, like, the seatbelt, like, like how they taught kids to wear their seatbelts and then that encouraged their parents to wear their seatbelts. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, that was 100% one of their goals was to, because, of course, they can't get access to every Italian. Right. Um, and But they can get access to every child, mm. at least in theory, mm -hmm. through the legal system. And right. Mussolini, one of the things that he did was he extended the um, age, sort of what the mandatory age is for education oh. to up to 14. Hmm. So now the state, in theory, has children from the age of 6 to 14 right. and can train them in the Italian language because, frankly, at the beginning of the regime, a majority of Italians didn't speak Italian. Oh, wow. And they can uh, bring home the goals of, of 
the the regime. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I think you know what's interesting is that over the twenty years, Mussolini decides that actually, the Ministry of Education and educators people trained in education Mm -hmm. were not the best educators for (laughs) fascism, Ah. but actually members of the party and the youth organization, Hmm. the the Balila organization, was actually better at it. So he started to try and get sort of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, the the fascist version of that, to be in control of more and more Mm. education, which causes another tension. Yeah, yeah. So for our last question before the break, what do you hope readers will take away from your book? So my my hope is, um, well, I hope they take a lot of things from my book, but especially that concepts of race and racism are not static. Um, and even the brightest uh Italians and Americans that I come into contact with still are uncomfortable moving beyond sort of binaries of black and white or uh, Jewish, non-Jewish, right, in terms of race. Um, So pushing, I want people to think more um, in more nuanced ways about race. Mm -hmm. I want them to think about education more critically, that textbooks that education they're not um objective that they have uh people are deciding what to teach and what not to teach right and frankly that italy is and fascist italy is really important to 20th century world history right right yeah yeah that all Makes perfect sense. It is a great, great support um, note for reading your book. (laughs) Thank you. All right. We're going to go into our next ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. Um, If you're just joining us, we're joined with Dr. McLean, whose current research focuses on the Italian fascist attempts to create a border of Italianita in the northeasternmost region through the education system. So what does Italianita mean, and why was it important to fascism? So broadly speaking, Italianita just means Italianness. So, but it is much more, it has a lot of meat to it, because it, Italianness is sort of what I was talking about, these, these spiritual characteristics that were considered inherent in being Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is really important to fascism, as I was saying, was to unify the nation, ideally under the fascist regime. But I think it's important for people to know that while Italy was unified in the 1860s, um, they it was hardly a unified nation, as most nation states are not particularly uniform, right? But Italy is especially interesting because, as I mentioned, a majority of people don't speak Italian. Um, In fact, when Italy is unified, as many people within the borders speak French as they do what we consider Italian. Oh, wow. Um, Most Italians speak 
regional languages that are have greater or lesser uh, relationship to what we think of as Italian. And so um, it was really important for the fascist regime to at least have everyone speaking the same right, language yeah. to feel unified so that they could then go out and promote the goals of the regime abroad mm. and within its borders. And the reason why it's interesting and important along this border land, the border in northeastern Italy, is because that, until 1920, uh, was not part of Italy. It was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, yeah. And it was given to Italy in, um, in the aftermath of World War I. Hmm. But still today, in this territory that is now known as um, uh, Trentino Alto Adige, half of the population does not speak Italian as their primary language. They speak German. Oh, yeah. Or a third language, which is Latin, with a D. Mm -hmm. And so Mussolini, if he's going to prove that this is supposed to be part of Italy, he needs to make sure that people speak Italian right. and have Italianita along the border, especially on, along the border. Because if the border isn't held, then who knows what kinds right. of evil influences and... Uh, dangers can come into the, yeah. the country, right? Absolutely. And so it becomes imperative to him that he um, make sure everyone knows that this territory is Italian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The power of identity. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Broadly, how did the education system enforce this idea? Well, they didn't enforce They They tried to enforce Okay. It. Okay. They were not particularly successful especially since today that's still, you know, um, a significant number of German speakers. But what they tried to do is they tried to insist, at first, they had all signs and names changed to Italian. So even oh. sort of German-sounding last names were ch changed to oh. Italian-sounding last names. Hmm. Towns that were Germ had German-sounding names were, you know, changed into Italian-sounding last names. So um, a town, Caltern, gets changed to Caldaro. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> or Brixen is Bresanone. Huh. And so Bozzin is Bolzano. And so they have, so they, and they insist that all signs are in both languages. But in terms of education, they attempt to... It, insist that all all classes needed to be in the Italian language, which gets a lot of pushback. Oh, yeah. And the individuals, the leaders who push back the most are the clergy. Hmm. And they are very, very uh, important in the regional culture, and particularly the German-speaking clergy, but they also play a really important role in the education system. Because under the Austro-Hungarian regime, they are the only ones allowed to teach religious history, uh, religion in the classroom. So mm -hmm. they come in. So clergy comes in, teaches religion, and goes out. Oh, wow. But they are, if they feel, if they are um, clergy in a predominantly German-speaking town community, they refuse to speak Italian in the classroom. Oh. And so it becomes this 
yeah. incredible um, sort of fight between the church and the state yeah, and wow. German speakers and Italian speakers. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So what sort of sources are you using for this project? Uh, well, so at the, at the heart of it is um, this memoir by a gentleman who was the superintendent of schools pretty much for the entire fascist period from 1923 to 1944. Mm. Um, and he wrote during the years of World War II and slightly after, he wrote something like 1,300 pages um, of his ideas and his life story and um, all of his observations of his time in uh, in his office of su as superintendent of schools. Yeah. And then, but then I, I've gone to, I think, 15 different archives in three different countries. Wow. Um, so I am using uh, sources from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from the Vatican, from the local regional um, uh, archives, both provincial and town, and uh, the the diocesan archives in Brixen, Bresanone, and Trento, yeah. and also sort of Austrian state archives to see how they are are navigating these these issues. Wow. Yeah. So when you're planning your trips out to go to these archives, do you have like the ones in mind that you know will have those sources or do you just go and hope that they'll have uh, something that will be helpful for you? So at the beginning, when I start a project, I'm just going and to see what I see. Right. I have sort of an interest. I have an inkling and then I just go see what I can see. So, for example, this memoir mm -hmm. was found. It's still not cataloged in the archive, but it had just been donated to a small regional archive, and one of the archivists was like, well, you're interested in language and, and education. Have you heard of oh, Luigi, Luigi yeah. Molina? And we just got his papers. Oh. Um, so there's that. But then you have to be very strategic. And, yeah. and research trips really require a lot of research before you go. Right. So I don't necessarily know everything that I'm going to be able to find because, as I said, a lot of the finding aids are just like, they just have one word at the beginning. Right, yeah. And so you have to also be flexible once you get there and say, right. ooh, okay, these are interesting documents. Now I need to go find these others. Hmm. But it really helps to have some sense of, yeah, I'm of sure. where to go. Right, yeah. But that's why it takes years to, and many trips to get this all done. Right, yeah, yeah, the mix of planning and serendipity, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, so for example, you know, I was in Vienna last winter, last February, um, and I realized that I needed to go to Berlin because, of course, the Austrian archives after 1938 are not in Vienna, right? Because mm -hmm. that was after the Angelus when it, Austria becomes part of the the German Reich. Mm. So those documents are all in well, Berlin. So yeah, yeah. I don't know why it took me that long, but uh, so things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We're gonna take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. We're at our last segment of the hour with Dr. McLean, and so that means it's time for our Q&A with trivia questions and our final wrap-up. 
Okay, so our first trivia question is the seizure of was it carried out by which nationalist and first world war veteran oh fume yes there oh. we go <laughs> I, um, I wanted to say it that yeah, way but no, i wasn't sure no, uh gabriele denuncio okay <laughs> yes that is exactly right in 1919 he and his supporters occupied the city of fume or fume fume okay which had been disputed between italy and yugoslavia after the first world war this event known as the fume crisis was a significant moment in italian history and contributed to the rise of fascism in the country it's one of my favorite stories in history yeah oh very cool yeah (laughs) and for our second question what did some people refer to mussolini as oh uh, I mean, <laughs> lots of different things. Uh, Il Duce was sort of otherwise known as the leader, but he had a lot of other, you know. Yeah, that was the one, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So to wrap up our hour with you, we always ask the same last two questions to our guests. So our first one is, why is it important that we study history? Um, I, I mean, history is the foundation of who we are uh you know none of us is created in a vacuum and so it's really I think it's really useful to understand how we come to be um our community our nation states our uh world but I also think so I think history is really really important to understanding how um events affect each other, how there are consequences to everything, both good and bad. But I also think the study of history is really critical, foundational to becoming critical analytical thinkers. Oh, yeah. um, And sort of understanding that the simplest answer isn't always... Right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that combination of the theory of why and then the practice of why and the skill building, too. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And for our last question of the hour, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Um, The most general, I would say, is to keep asking questions. Just always ask why. Yeah. And keep asking why. Um, Why did they not write this? Why did they write that? Why was this created? What was... The, the reason. Um, but I also, uh, relatedly, to stay curious. Don't yeah. just take courses that are in your wheelhouse to take classes and go to places that you don't know anything about because right. you will find amazing connections that you do not expect. Yeah. And along those lines, to take a foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. Because seeing your own culture from someone else's perspective is really, really illuminating. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice and definitely a perfect way to end our amazing conversation with you. So to conclude our thank yous, thank you, of course, to Dr. McLean for taking the time to come have a conversation with us. We really enjoyed getting to have you. And then, of course, thank you to the history department as a whole for their support and Dr. Schultz, who's our history club faculty advisor. 
Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support as well. And then our researcher, Colby, who you had in class, I think, last semester. So he always helps us with our questions. So big thanks to him. Thank you to Weagle for their support and giving us the space and uh, opportunity to have this radio hour. And of course, thank you to our listeners, because without you, we wouldn't be here. So we'll see you next week and War Eagle. See you next week. Thank you.